0: Several of you spoke to me at our break time and mentioned a few things I just want to share with the rest of you. One brother suggested that we not limit ourselves either with our wives or with the Lord by just doing the first works again. We should be able to outdo the first works. That's an interesting thought. That sounds like a zealous heart that doesn't want to... Limit Himself with the first works, but can we go beyond them? And if we've known the Lord very long and walked with Him, we should be able to do so. Why settle for the first works? Can we do better than a wildflower? Can we do better than what we did when we were first converted? We've walked with the Lord for many years. We should be able to give Him a greater degree of intimacy and love and appreciation for what He's done for us than we have before. Another said, it's important that in a day's management, that you think about time and the funnel the funnel effect of all the responsibilities of the day coming down. That if you put off your time of devotion with the Lord toward the end of the day, you're going to be tired. More is going to compete with that activity, and pretty soon you're shortchanging the Lord because you're giving him the time that's left over. Another brother spoke up and said, "Even in the matter of time, we need to give the first fruits." Amen. Not the leftover time or not the last fruits of time. And so time needs to be blocked out that at this point, it's the Lord's. And we're not going to let anything encroach upon that. Just like we're supposed to give to the Lord off the top, according to Hebrews, according to Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. When it comes to time, we ought to give him the time off the top as well. That can be either done first in the day or it can be done at a place in time where you say at this point, it's the Lord's and i will not let anything cross that border another person said that how nice it is to read malachi 3:16 and 17 and find out that the lord shows his appreciation for the objects that make him happy for those people that please him and that delight in him by writing a book of remembrance and remembering them and in the day that he makes up his jewels He'll remember all those that loved Him and spoke about Him often one to another. Malachi three sixteen and 17 tell us that the Lord has a book of remembrance in which He writes down the names of those people that speak often one to another about Him and He remembers them and He'll bless them and He'll make them His jewels. Someone shared that with Scott Collins when he first got here in the first couple of days because my first devotions with him on... One of the mornings over a week ago, he wanted to tell me about that and how much that meant to him. And I appreciate whatever brother did indeed say that to him. We were considering briefly, what does it mean to love God? We were looking at it from several different ways. We can see that loving God is making him the object of our pleasure. And we can also see that loving God is making ourselves the object of his pleasure. The first is taking time to think upon God and his ways and delight in, and to delight in them. The second is to keep his commandments so that he delights in us because we're always doing his will. We do that for people that we love. We should certainly do that for the God that has loved and saved us. We saw that loving God is loving his words, loving his works, loving his character, loving his kingdom. I'll add to it that it's loving his people. You cannot love God without loving His people. If you never serve God's people, you cannot love God. If you do not go out of your way to do good toward the other children of God that love Him, you cannot love God. The Bible makes that very clear in 1 John 4 and 5. Loving God is also loving prayer, for that is the way of intimate communion with God. If you don't love prayer, you need to examine yourself and find out why and change your life. The best example of that is to go to a place like Luke 6.12 and find Jesus in prayer all night with his Father. Jesus loved his Father. Jesus loved God and God loved the Lord Jesus Christ. But it tells us that Jesus was all night in prayer with his Father in Luke 6.12. And that gives us an example. A man that loves God loves prayer because prayer is communication. When a, young, when a young man and a young woman love each other, there's a rise in the phone usage. And there's a, because they want to talk to each other. And when we, our love for the Lord increases, it ought to increase in prayer, because that's when we talk to each other. It should be very simple for you to equate those two together and examine yourself as to how much you love the Lord. How important is it to love God? We were made for His pleasure. Therefore, it is the purpose for your existence. If you don't love God and you don't love Him the way that we are describing and to the degree that we're measuring, then you're not fulfilling your purpose. God did not make you for yourself. You weren't made by chance. You were made by a Creator that is a very personal being to have a personal relationship with Him for His pleasure. According to verses that we know well, We should love God above all else for the simple fact that He is an infinitely perfect person. There's no more needed. We should love God because He is infinitely perfect by every measure. If you can't think of some measures, I encourage you to go back and find a sermon that is on the website from many, many years ago entitled, from Song Song of Solomon, chapter 5, about my beloved. Uh, Let me just read to you a few verses from that chapter of the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. The sermon is entitled, He is altogether lovely, from Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and verse 16. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. In that sermon outline that is extensive, it makes comparisons by how we measure a person, whether they are lovable. And if you take any measure that your mind can imagine and compare it to God, He excels like infinity to severely limited, finite number. He is so far excellent and superior by every measure. And it's a a pleasant exercise to go through it, that if I love this about a person... How does God measure in that category? And he's infinitely superior. And you add another category and you add a third. And in each one, he's infinitely superior. And if those things cause you to love another person, how much more should they cause you to love the God of heaven? Because even though you squeezed a person into one of those categories, you know that they're not always in the category because they tend to slip out because their love has an end. Did you like those words that we sang in that song, that the love of God is costly, free, and has no end? How is it costly? It cost him the life of his own son. How is it free? There's nothing required of you because he gives it by free grace. And it has no end. It will see us through eternity. Through the curtain of death and through all eternity. We should love God greatly for the simple fact that He created us from nothing and gave us life. Your life. Every moment of pleasure that you've ever had in your life that was not sinful is purely a gift from God to give you existence. And you should love Him for that. You should love Him for the natural kindness He bestows upon us every day. The Apostle Paul could preach and say that God left Himself a witness in that He did good and, and filled our hearts with food and gladness. In Acts 14, 17. Every time you have a good meal, every time you experience pleasure, it is a gift from God and that gift is leading you to love Him because it is a witness of His goodness in heaven. According to Acts 14. We should love Him for adopting us as sons. How many times does the Bible say that? We love Him because He first loved us. And behold what manner of love. What kind of love did the Father bestow upon us? The great God of heaven adopted children, and the whole earth is moving toward the day in which he will reveal them to the universe. And in order to do that, he had to give the life of his own son for the lives of his enemies that he might redeem us. How do you even measure such love? But that is what should drive us to love him. This is why it's important for us to love him. We should love him because he forgives us every time we sin. There is forgiveness with him that he may be feared, the Bible says, but that means there is forgiveness with him that he may be loved. If there was no forgiveness with him, he'd be hard to love, he'd be hard to fear, not in the proper sense of fear. But because there's forgiveness, it's easy to run to him and seek that forgiveness and love him because of his forgiveness and his faithfulness to forgive us. Loving God was commanded, you know all those commandments, you know that God is jealous, you know that the Bible exhorts us to love, you know that the Bible says if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know that Jesus Christ condemned the church at Ephesus for their loss of their first love, you know Jesus condemned the church at Laodicea for being lukewarm in their relationship with him. And you'll never be happy as a human being unless it's fulfilled in a relationship with your Creator. You will live this life without being fully satisfied or happy, and you will live the next life without it unless you're one of his own children. Because it is the relationship between God and his children that maximize our existence. It makes us superior to the angels to be the children of God and God our Abba Father. It is the fulfillment of everything that the soul of man craves is found in a relationship with God, and it cannot be replaced by anything else, though the world tries desperately to find a replacement, and they're all frustrated. Look at the things they, they go for to try to find satisfaction or happiness in life. They go from one to the next to the next. Chemicals to alter their moods because they cannot exist with their own selves. Dysfunction. Drugs. Drugs. Divorce, trouble, extreme sports, because they're so discontent with their life. Always trying to push the edge to try to find something that will satisfy them because they're missing the only one that can. That's why David would, Asaph, Asaph, would write in Psalm 73, there's no one on earth and there's no one in heaven besides thee, O Lord. You are the strength of my life and my heart. Only the Lord can satisfy. You can look anywhere and you'll never find it. You're just going to frustrate yourself and waste your life in a vain pursuit. How much did others love God? When you read the Bible, who really loved God? When you read about the martyrs, whether they're in the Bible or in the pages of Fox's book of martyrs, did they love God? They loved God. They laid down their lives for their love of God. Are you willing to do that? He hasn't even asked of us to to give our lives as a martyr. He just wants a living sacrifice that we would conform our lives to show his perfect will. He wants his will shown in our lives, and that is an acceptable sacrifice for him. But when you think about a martyr, they love God enough to say, burn me. Go ahead and burn me. You're helping me by getting me sooner to my father in heaven and my savior in glory. Do you love him like a martyr or do they seem like extreme fanatics to you? You can't even put down the foolish little temptations of this life and they put down their whole life in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. How about Moses? Did Moses love God? How did he prove it? He forsook all the riches of Egypt and all the pleasures of sin for a season in order to get what? A big position with Israel? Or to suffer affliction with the people of God? That's what it says. There was no big position with Israel. There was a painful job that Moses had for 40 years, taking care of those babies and interceding for them so God didn't burn them up. But he made that choice because he loved God. How about Ruth? Did Ruth love the Lord? What did she say to Naomi? Entreat me not to leave thee. Stop trying to dissuade me to go back to Moab. Don't do that to me. I want your God to be my God. She loved the Lord God that she had been introduced to by her mother-in-law and her father-in-law and her husband. And she wanted that God for her God and she wanted to be with those people in their worship. And where Naomi was buried, she wanted to be buried. Think about the love. She gave up her home country, home language, home schools, home friends, relatives, and all of it. Flushed it with the silver lever to be part of God's people and worship the Lord God. She gave up everything. Her sister couldn't do it. Sometimes there's a division made in families where one family member will love God more than the other. Ruth loved God and Orpah didn't. Orpah went back to Moab and that's where she ended her life. Ruth went to Israel because she loved the God of Israel. And she ended up being the great grandmother of David and a mother in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because she loved the Lord. How about David? Whether he danced with all his might before the Ark of the Covenant, or he gathered materials with all his might to build the temple, or everything in between, David loved God. And he was a lover of God. How much did others love God and does it provoke us to want to love Him like they did? You read about Abraham in Genesis 22 last night. Abraham was tempted by God. That is what it says. Abraham was tempted by God by God asking him to take the son that he loved and offer him as a burnt sacrifice to God to prove that he truly loved God. The first statement comes in the first part of the chapter where God said to Abraham, take thine only son, the only one by promise, the only one by Sarah, the only one that mattered, the only one that was going to perpetuate God's seed. I hope you understand it when it says his only son, though he had Ishmael. Ishmael didn't matter when it came to God and Isaac and Abraham and Isaac. Take thine only son, the son whom thou lovest. When the Lord tempts us, he's able to find what we love. I want you to know that if you put your love on something other than God, you are challenging God to take that thing away from you. Don't play with anything that you would ever put near God in importance in your life, or He will take it from you. Do you want to keep everything as safe and secure in your life as possible? Then lay it all on the altar. Give it all to God, and He will not have a reason to try you or tempt you. Abraham loved Isaac, and God tried Abraham with Isaac. But you'll notice what it says later. When God called Abraham out of heaven, He said to him, Now I know that thou fearest me. Or we could say, now I know that thou lovest me because you gave the son that you love to me. You were willing to do it. The knife was raised. Abraham had faith that if he killed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. But it still was one, it was one difficult three-day journey, wasn't it? To be, to be walking along with your son without a lamb and to have wood for the fire and to have the fire... And to have your son ask, where is the lamb? When you read a chapter like that, you should stop with every verse and actually think about doing something like that. And then when God asks for one of your children in one way or the other and takes them away from you, you can be like Abraham because it says he rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and went to do what God said. Right. Because he had faith in God and he loved God. And he wasn't going to lose God because God will never leave you, though our children may. How much do you love God? Look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Are you too busy in your life? If you love God, you're going to change your life. Are you too busy? Do you love God enough to simplify your lifestyle? Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It came to pass. Luke 10, 38, now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house and she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Martha, Martha, we should say to each other when we get too busy, sometimes God providentially arranges circumstances that make us busy in the ordinary course of life. Sometimes we choose to put things into our lives that cause unnecessary busyness. There is a monstrous difference between those two. And do not let the meek and loving souls be condemned by the first category when they're guiltless of the second category. Did you follow that? If God arranges for there to be short-term busyness in your life, That's one thing. But when we choose to bring that busyness into our lives, that's another thing. We shouldn't choose that or we're like Martha. Look at the three things that are said here. Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. I know you've got lots of things on your mind. However, I want you to consider three things. One thing is needful. There's one needful thing here, and it's not running around the kitchen to make sure we have a perfect four-course meal. Two. Mary hath chosen that good part. This needful thing is a good thing that Mary's chosen, and it's not going to be taken away from her. I'm sorry, I'm not going to waste her life in the kitchen with you. Now, it may not be a kitchen. It may be something else. But we need to examine our lives in the 168 hours that we have a week to make sure that we have enough time for what Mary did, and that's to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had the opportunity, and it was a blessed privilege. And I would do it with anyone that wanted to do it. But I had it this past week with a brother from a far country. One of the devotional times we had was about 2 Samuel 7. And David's love of God. And after God told David that he wouldn't let him build him a temple... And he told David all that he was going to do for David, which was phenomenal. David went in and sat before the Lord and talked to the Lord, just like this. Now, there isn't a place that we go to on earth like Mecca. And David didn't have a temple in Jerusalem. But David went where he could to sit before the Lord and to talk to the Lord about what the Lord had said to him about making him a house. Do you have the time to do what Mary did? To sit at the feet of Jesus... No distractions, no interruptions, your mind clear, and to talk to the Lord. And to tell Him your needs, tell Him your praise, tell Him your love, to pray to Him, to receive from Him the blessings of His Spirit as He communicates with your spirit that you are indeed a Son of God and He is your Abba Father. Do you have time for that? This is what we need to make more time for. Everything wants to encroach on that. We have hobbies. We have jobs. We have marriages. We have children. We have other responsibilities. We have brethren. We have a government. We have a body to take care of. We have food to prepare. We have a yard to work on. But at some point in this list of priorities, we need to cut things off, draw lines through it, and say, I don't need that. That is not the needful thing. The needful thing is sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. It's the good part of life. And it should not, it cannot fail from my list of things I do every day. Do you hear that? The high king of heaven doesn't want that good part taken away from you and it's the needful part for your life. But so many other things get in the way. So many other things. God being with you is so much more important for your advancement in life than an A versus a B. An employer is never going to give a rip, nor will they ask nine times out of ten about your GPA. Even they know that it doesn't matter because it's going to come down to your character and your diligence anyway. But God, especially when we give him our time, if we were to sacrifice a little bit here to give him more time, He is able to speak the word and to open doors of opportunity you could never open with your silly little GPA that even they don't care about. This is the balance that we've always got to be playing with ourselves and with our children. There's got this is the needful part to sit and love the Lord Jesus Christ and to love God and to seek his face. When thou saidst to me, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, O Lord, thy face will I seek. This balance is what I'm preaching for today. What can you get out of your life to give more time so that you can seek the Lord? Let me show you how it applies to a marriage. Let's take marriage and watch all that the Bible has to say about marriage, that you keep your own marriage in its proper place. I find this very interesting. Luke 14. I hope you were able to read that last evening. Did you find several situations in Luke 14 that involved some that did not love God like they should have? Were you sickened by the fact that with, with one consent, they began to make excuse in verse 18? Does that, did that make you sick? People always have an excuse. As to why the Lord isn't first in their lives. And their excuses are ridiculous. And their excuses are listed here. And these excuses are actually better than many that I've heard in my lifetime. But with one consent. Because the world is of one mind. We do not need that needful part to be with God. We need these other things. I hope you read it. I don't, that's not where I'm going there right now. There was so many lessons in here, but if you really love God, you're going to take the lowest seat when you're invited any place, because you're going to show God's character. If you love God, you're going to invite the poor, the halt, the maimed, and the blind out to dinner rather than your friends. If you really love God, you're going to be so thankful that he has invited you to eat at his table in his kingdom, you would never give an excuse not to be there. Did you read that? That king was rightly angered by them making light of his dinner. Did you find yourself in that chapter? Did he send his servants out into the highways and hedges to compel them to come in? That's us stupid Gentiles. Us stupid Gentiles were out in the highways and hedges and the Lord sent his servants. That's the apostles. They came and preached to us lowlifes. We were outside the commonwealth of Israel. We had no right to the worship of God. But he sent his apostles to us, and we should rejoice that we've been invited to the supper. We should hate those men that made up excuses. And we should never have an excuse. We should always want to thank the Lord that he's invited us to his table in his kingdom. And that table is the fellowship that we can have with God, whether it is specifically involving the Lord's Supper the Lord's church services, or just you walking with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. That is New Testament communion with God. Let's never make up excuses. Let's be thankful. Because look what He did. He took that kingdom away from them, especially if you know Matthew 21, that is the corresponding account. I want verse 26. Verse 25 starts this section of Luke 14. There went great multitudes with Him. Jesus has a crowd going with him, And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife, he cannot be my disciple. The lesson I want to get from Luke 14, 26 is, if you don't hate your wife in comparison to the Lord, you can't be his disciple. I want you to see how the Lord is going to put some constraints on marriage and put marriage in its proper place. Your spouse cannot compete with God. You must love God more than your spouse, more than your children, more than your parents, more than your siblings, more than your houses, more than your lands, more than your own life also. You shouldn't have any grandiose plans for your life that would ever compete with what God wants. Luke 14 is what teaches us that. Do you love God enough to give up your spouse for Him? If there was ever a competition... And your spouse said, it's either God or me. That should be easy. It was easy for David, wasn't it? I love 2 Samuel chapter 6. He came home from worshiping God with all his might before the Ark of the Covenant. And his wife said to him, how shameless you were today. You acted like a dumb servant boy, stripping off your royal robes and dancing with all your might. Oh, you didn't like that? Is your maiden name Saul? I paraphrase. Is your maiden name Saul? I think it is. Oh, yeah. Your family is the family that God rejected and threw out of ruling in Israel, and he chose my family and me over your father and brother and the rest of your... (laughs) Let me show you something that's shameless then. I will never sleep with you again in your life. Right. The heir to my throne will certainly not come out of your womb. Bask in it. That's a man after God's own heart. She made fun of him and mocked him for his zeal for loving the Lord. Now turn to Colossians 3.18. Colossians 3.18. Did Luke 14... Tell us that a husband should hate his wife. (laughs) In a sense. What's the sense? In comparison to God. But now look what it says. So to love God means I keep my wife so that she doesn't compete with him. Yep. How about Colossians 319? Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. How do I love God with this verse? By keeping His commandments. Because the love of God is keeping His commandments. Follow. The love of God is keeping His commandments. Do you really want to love God? Then you will love your wife and you will never be bitter against her. You will hate bitterness that rises up in your heart and you will crush it and get rid of it. That criticizing negative spirit that wants to find her faults when you've got ten times her faults? And if you don't think you do, come to me Tell me about hers, and I'll tell you about yours. Since she might be timid to do so, I won't be. Come and tell me her faults, and I'll tell you your ten times her faults. I happen to know the average woman in this church compared to the average man in this church. I am on solid ground. (coughs) And I'm not looking for an offering from the women. Look at this verse. Hate your wife so that she can't compete with God. But if you really want to love God, you're going to love your wife and not be bitter against her because that is God's order for a Christian marriage. Do you see what the Lord's doing to marriage? He's packing this snowball together or He's packing this diamond together and giving us several facets of it. If I love God, I will not let my wife encroach upon my love of Him. The dearest object in my life will not be my wife. It will be God Himself. However, I will love my wife without any bitterness. And I will love her the way the Bible defines love because God wants me to do that to please Him. So I've got to do those two things. I keep her from competing with Him, but I truly love her in the Bible. That's such a short verse. But that's one of the hardest verses in the Bible for a man. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. To love God, you have to keep that verse fully at all times. You don't keep that verse, you offend God, you quench the Holy Spirit, you lose your love for God, and you're going down. You're in an elevator, and it's going down to the basement. And you wonder why? Purge your bitterness. Confess it. And go restore that relationship. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7.29 This I say, brethren... 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine. this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. A godly man in the face of a tempting society will live life in such a way as if he didn't have a wife. Not fully, because he's still married. But it's a way of looking at life, not letting the wife consume his time and his emotion. And his care. Watch. If we continue on, you'll understand. And they that weep as though they wept not. Though they're sad about something, they don't let that sadness consume them. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. When they get happy, they don't get too happy in things because their greatest happiness is in God and they don't want that happiness on earth to distract them from the kingdom of heaven. And they that buy as though they possess not. if you have to go out and buy something, don't go out as if owning another asset is going to be some great fulfillment for your life. Just go make the purchase and get it over with. And they that use this world as not abusing it. If you have to use this world, then go out and use it. But don't abuse it by letting it become too important to you. Just go get your job over with and get home and do what you're supposed to. But the point I want to make is... When we have a tempting society that takes our attention away from the Lord, a married man should act like an unmarried man in that respect. He should make time for the Lord. Those that be married be as though they had none. I hope you can I hope I've said it enough and I hope I've preached enough in the past that you know what it says. Now look at what we just hate your wife in comparison to me, but you better love her and you better love her without bitterness. But there's a time for me And there's a time in a a tempting society where you better act like you're not married. Because verses 32 through 35 of this same chapter say that I would have you without carefulness. Look at that 32nd verse, the first sentence. But I would have you without carefulness. God wants your life without carefulness. Carefulness means worry, anxiety, fear. Basically those things. Not to be worrying and fretting about your life. I would have you to be without carefulness. And when we take things on, we take a marriage on, that adds a lot of care to our lives. And the Bible says it right here. It says in verse 32, the second sentence, He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. And then it goes on and says the same thing about girls and women right there. A virgin cares more for the things of the Lord. Because she's not married to a man that she's got to spend a great deal of her life caring for and taking care of. Look at what the the Bible's doing to marriage. It's putting it in its proper perspective. A wife should never compete with God, but you better love your wife the way God tells you to. But you better have time for him, and you better have a wife, but at times you better act almost like a single man in your pursuit of God. And if you're single, you should weigh it very heavily about getting married, because getting married adds a great deal of care to your life. And if you have a gift from God, then you don't need to get married. Go ahead and, and be in love with the Lord. His ordinary, his ordinary solution for ordinary men and women is for them to be married because it's not good for the man to be alone. But Paul does make a pretty strong point in 1 Corinthians 7, and there were some justifying circumstances for the single life in Corinth. How about verse 39? Same chapter. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be, to be married to whom she will. Only in the Lord. So let's add another aspect to this about how God, how we can love God in our marriages. If you get married, what does this text tell you you have to do when you marry? In your selection process, you have to marry in the Lord. In the Lord. Among those that are in the Lord, do you want to marry low? medium, or high in their love of the Lord. If you love the Lord, do you want to marry someone that barely loves the Lord, but is in the Lord, that sort of loves the Lord, but is in the Lord, but really loves the Lord that's in the Lord? Which kind of a person should you want to be married to? High High in the Lord. So that you're married to someone that can help you not only naturally as a wife, but spiritually as a real helper. So look at Look at how the Lord has taken marriage. We want to love the Lord. The whole sermon is about loving the Lord. Look what he's done. In comparison, you would let the wife go to love God. But God tells you how to love your wife, and so you're going to treat her the way God tells you to because you love him, and you want to be the delight of his soul. When you swallow your bitterness, when you purge your life of bitterness, God is pleased. God looks down, and he knows the difficulty it is, For you to get rid of your bitterness, and He's pleased when you do it. That's how we love Him. We marry in the Lord. We act as if we aren't married at times to make sure we have some single time with the Lord. These are the things the Lord teaches about marriage so that we can put our lives in proper perspective. Do you love God enough to reject the sins in your life unconditionally? Hebrews 12 tells us to run our race with patience, laying aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Do you have sins that easily beset you? Are you going to engage in them today or tomorrow or for the rest of your life? Or are you going to blow them out because you love God? If you love God, you want to run a race to win His approval and His favor by getting rid of those weights those weights are activities and hindrances in your life that keep you from loving Him like you should. The sins that easily beset you, they can be general sins that easily beset all of us, or they can be particular sins that easily beset you. Are you willing to give them all up to love God? Look at, I want you to look at that text Hebrews chapter 12. I don't like quoting them to you sometimes. It's there, and I want you to see it. It's the Word of God. It's precious, it's plain, it's powerful. It's in the black and white print. It's written down for us. Hebrews chapter 11 had 40 verses about great men and women of the Old Testament that loved God. And they did great things by their love for God and their faith in God. And it comes to verse 1 of chapter 12 and it says, Wherefore, because of these 40 verses of great characters that went before, Wherefore, Hebrews 12, 1, Seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. We have a race, and the race is to win the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. There is a prize that will be handed out in this world and the next for those that run their race well to please God. It's a real race. The Olympics are a joke in comparison to this race. No one, no one will remember a single medal at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ that won a medal at an Olympics. Everyone will know the grief that they didn't win a medal or the thanksgiving and joy at getting a medal from the hands of the Lord of Glory at the great day of judgment. And it's this race right here. And we're going to walk out of these doors momentarily, and you will start a race. And you're running a race right now. How well are you listening, and what are you saying in your own heart? Are you willing to lay aside every weight, those things that just clutter our lives and cause us to be heavy? I mean, who wants a 20-pound weight disc on their shoulders when they're running a race? You want to cut that thing off. You want the lightest singlet that you can get your hands on, the lightest shoes. I remember Michael Johnson running his world record in Atlanta in 1996. His shoes weighed four ounces. That's light. Because you want to get rid of every weight. Is it job? Is it hobby? Is it school? What is it that takes too much of your time and effort that you could shed a little bit of in order to run your race better? And then what are the sins that easily beset you? What sins come calling at your door to make you an ineffective Christian? A One that's not re- winning a race. One that's losing. We have, a, we have the grandstands and the bleachers in the stadium full of the people mentioned in chapter 11. That's where, why it says we have a great cloud of witnesses. When you're down in the playing field of the big house in Michigan, you can't see the individual faces. It's just a cloud of 114,000 people. This is the cloud of witnesses. There's a, there's a few of them mentioned in chapter 11, but it just goes on to declare that there's not enough time to list all of them. Paul said that. And we have that great cloud of witnesses and we're running a race. What do you need to get rid of in your life? To love God more. Lord, help us. Is there any comfort of love in the Lord Jesus Christ? Then fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded and esteem others more important than yourself. If you really love God, and if God's love really means something to you, then you will live a sacrificial life for the benefit of others. Philippians 2, 1-4 teaches that. If you really love God, you're going to love His Word because He delights in His Word. Do you know how high He's exalted His Word? Above His name. Psalm 138 and verse 2. God has exalted His Word above all His name. That's pretty high. Do you know how you love a person? You say their name. But what if they've exalted something above their name? His word. How much do you love God? That's the simplicity of this sermon. How much do you love God? How much do I love God? It shows by how much we love His word. If you found God or His kingdom in a field, how much would you spend to buy that field? According to Matthew thirteen forty four through 46, how much would you spend? Would you spend all that you had to get your hands on that field? That's what Jesus taught we ought to do. What if you saw a batch of pearls come in and you saw, it, you saw one in there that was the pearl of great price, that was an, un, an unbelievable pearl. It, it represents God and his kingdom. How much would you spend for that batch of pearls? All. Oh. We have to be willing to do this in order to love God the way he's asking. Could you give up one desired football game for God? Should he be impressed? Should you be shamed to even hear the question? Would you accept a B in class instead of an A for more time with him and his kingdom? Do you love God enough to cut off your right hand or pluck out your right eye in order to keep from sinning? Are you willing to give up something that tempts you for the rest of your life? Pluck out your eye and throw it away. Or cut it off for a year? Are you willing to do that for the love of God? Anything that you can mention is dung. The Apostle Paul called his rabbinical learning of the Jews dung. Anything you've got is less than that. He was well taught in the Jews' religion, which was the religion of God, and he he considered it all dung. Are you willing to give it all up to love God more? Or are you like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? And he said, I've kept all the commandments from my youth up. And Jesus said, well, if there's one little thing I'd like from you. And see, the Lord knows this about all of us. There's one little thing I'd like from you. Would you go sell what you have and give it to the poor? He had a big balance sheet. That was too much for him. He went away sorrowful. And for 2,000 years, he's been read about for the loser that he is. And none of you in here are a rich young ruler. So anything you've got to give up is far less than he wouldn't give up. He was a loser. And if you can't give up something far less, then what kind of a loser are you? What kind of a loser am I? Do you love God enough to rejoice with other great lovers of God? When you meet them, does it get you excited? Do you want to do anything you can for them? Do you want to encourage them as much as you can? What does does another great lover of the Lord mean to you? Does it stir you up? Does it convict you and condemn you in a good way? Does it it cause you to to emulate and want to do better? Do you want to do do anything you can to keep them in their way? Do you want to encourage that person? Does it stoke your fires? It should. It should. It should if you love God. You're going to love those that love God. Do you get your greatest joy from God? David said, You put more gladness and joy into my heart than when their corn and their wine increase. When a man of this world is able to look at his balance sheet and see that inventory is growing far beyond anything he had estimated for that year, and his actual compared to budget is unbelievably favorable, which means the bottom line is very, very good for us this year. And that, that puts gladness in their heart, but David said, you put more gladness in my heart than when their wine and their corn increase. That's Psalm 4 and verse 7. David talks like that all the time. Forgive us, Lord, for ever letting anything cheat. Our love for you. If you're a young person in here, do you know how you love God? Obey your parents. Do you want to bring delight to the God of heaven? Obey and honor your parents. Obey and honor your in-laws. Respect them. Honor them. That's how you please God. Because if He loves me, you'll keep my commandments. How do we make ourselves the object of His pleasure and delight? By doing those things that please Him. And He tells young people, to obey their parents. That's how you can do it. Do you love God enough that when you hear His Word and you understand it, that you want to celebrate? Did they want to celebrate in Nehemiah chapter 8 and the greatest preaching service described in the Bible? Amen. Right. We should want to celebrate when we understand God's Word. And if any part of it today is coming to you with any convicting power, celebrate it and run in the way of that conviction. Because it's a blessing from God. Or is God's Word just not quite a... Important enough to really move you. So what are you going to cheer about in life? Because you aced a test. (laughs) You're kidding me. We could train a baboon to ace it. Because you you won a race? Because you got a promotion? Because you bought a new car? Because someone scored a touchdown? Seriously, can we get serious? What are you going to rejoice about? I ate his word, and it wasn't to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I have taken his word as a heritage forever, for it is the rejoicing of my heart. Psalm 119, 111. This is loving God. This is what we have to walk out of here and do. This is what we should want to do. Jerry said to me at break time, it's a shame that we even have to preach about it. But he also knows we have to preach about it because we are, we are living in a constant war. It is our job every day to examine ourselves and to measure everything we're doing and to measure our priorities, whether the love of God is first, whether we have the needful thing and the good part first, or if we have let our cares for grades, our cares for jobs, our cares for a lawn, our cares for a clean car exceed our care for loving God. That's the good thing. That's the needful part. Lord, help us do it. Brethren, do you grieve over losing fellowship or do you even know what it is? If you grieve over losing fellowship, then you love God. David grieved over it. Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, but restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. We have to be that way. That's a man that loves God. He doesn't want to be separated from God. Do you have total confidence at meeting Him in judgment? Perfect love casts out fear. If you truly love... Let me tell you something. If you love God... God will love you, and you will be known of God, and you will have a, be- a witness within you from the Spirit of God that you are a son of God, and you'll be able to meet God confidently in judgment. 1 John 4, 16-19 teaches it way too plainly. If you love God, because God is love, if you are showing the character of God, God will come to you and reveal Himself to you and assure your heart Before him, by his spirit, that you are his. And there will be no fear in meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you one second of reading Revelation. And and there's fear unless you have loved God and he has revealed that witness in your spirit. There should be fear. There's only one way to get it. It's by his spirit. If you think that there is reassurance in any other way, you've deceived yourself. And I hope that I get to be a bystander when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you share your knowledge of him like a great treasure? The Gadarene wanted to go with Jesus. He did not want to be left there. He wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I'm not going to take you with me. I want you to go back and tell your friends what great things the Lord hath done for you. Do you know what that Gadarene did? He went and told all his friends what great things the Lord had done for him. And he lived up to those words so that they weren't empty words of a hypocrite. And you know what it says? The word was published abroad in Decapolis. Everyone heard about the Lord Jesus Christ from that Gadarene because he truly loved the Lord for what the Lord had done for him. How can you love God more? Let's pray for it. Let's beg God for it. Let's remember what I closed the first sermon with. Remember from whence thou art fallen. If you love God less than you have at other times in your life, remember from whence you are fallen. Go back and and remember what it was like and what you were doing Remember that, then repent, forever letting it slip, and do those first works again. Or as Brother Zach said at break time, let's do better than the first works. Can we do better than we did when we were first converted? And the first love that we had for the Lord Jesus Christ. What else can he do for you? He planted a vineyard. He pulled all the stones out of it. He put a hedge about it. He watered it. He weeded it. He did everything for his vineyard called Israel that he could. But when he came to collect grapes, he found wild grapes. Why is he getting wild grapes from you? What else could have been done for my vineyard? He hasn't done enough for you? I trow not. Can you read his word more? Can you listen to his favorite music more? Does God have favorite music? Will you pray for it? Do you know the Bible says that he can circumcise our hearts, that we and our children will love the Lord our God? That's Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. That sounds like a pretty important prayer for parents to make. Do you know what David said in his deathbed when he saw all of it? 30,000 princes of Israel that he had gathered together to tell them how the temple needed to be finished because he was about to die. He saw them give willingly for the temple, and he charged the Lord, and he begged the Lord to keep this always in the imaginations of the thoughts of the hearts of, the, of, my, of your people. And we want to pray that way, that the Lord will keep the thoughts and imaginations of loving him always in our hearts. Most hearers, most hearers in most churches only hear. That's why they're called hearers. Some will initially be convicted, but will do nothing about it. As soon as they walk out of here, some terrific temptation will take them down because they don't love God at all. And there'll be a few. There'll be a few that want to love him more. And are going to walk out of here and make sure that they make a few changes even today to love him more. May we be the Marys that choose the good part and the needful thing. If you don't love him, I serve an infinite and a glorious God. And he's going to bring pressure and pain to bear in your life if you neglect this sermon. It's our duty and it's our privilege to help one another love God more. We're going to stand before him so soon. He deserves our love every day. Let's not waste another minute of our lives. But let's love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let's love his son, Jesus Christ. Let's be so thankful for the forgiveness of sins that we have, the adoption of sons, and all that we have. In Christ Jesus, we are blessed abundantly. He has loved us. We love him because of that. But whether he loved us or not, and whether every and whether he ever blesses us or not, he is worthy of all our love anyway. What glorious being the great God of heaven is in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's love him and help each other love him. Thank you for writing the brother in a far country. I'm sorry that I failed to mention until it came to my mind right now that he got 20 emails when he got into Auckland and opened up his computer. And he said they were outstanding emails that encouraged and blessed his heart very much. And I thank each of you that wrote him. But let's keep doing that with each of us here and once in a while with him there. Let's help one another, love the Lord Jesus Christ more.